to Psalm 34. Psalm 34 is a well-known, these portions of it are well-known, and it's uh, one of uh, my favorite uh, psalms. We get to consider it this afternoon. Psalm 34. This is the word of our Lord. A psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. O bless the Lord at all times, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. O fear the Lord, you saints, there is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, But those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We pray that you would speak to us this afternoon. Help us to grow from it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a rare psalm with a title that actually tells us when and why it was written. It was written um, when David was in the Philistine territory and before uh, the king there, the, 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 the leader, and he pretended to be crazy in order to be let go. You can read of this episode in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 10 through 15. Was it today? No, today you guys are earlier in 1 Samuel, right, Linda? Okay, next week, kids, you'll learn about David being crazy before the king of the Philistines. In, in this psalm, David describes the experience in seeking God, in relating to God. And his experience really becomes normative to the believer. A lot of things that we read in the psalms become, become norm, normative or reflect what our experience should be as well. The psalmist is often a representative believer, giving words uh, to all believers at all, of all times. And that includes Psalm uh, 34. 
And there are six things that I want us to see this afternoon from Psalm 34 that will help us in relating to God. And they're going to be in the order of appearance, not necessarily the order of importance. You can attribute whatever importance you want to them. They're all important because they're all from the Word of God. But the order that we're going to consider the six things is the order they show up in the psalm. And the first thing I want us to see here in this psalm, in verses 1 through 3, is that as we relate to God, we should celebrate Him. Observe the passion and the ministry of David's worship, the passion and the intensity of David's worship here in this psalm. David's worship was voluntary. If you should see there in verse 1, he says, I, I will, vo- will worship the Lord. Nobody was forcing him to do that. He voluntarily worshiped, celebrated the Lord. It was a choice, a decision of his soul, irrespective of what others may do. In essence, he was saying, I've determined to celebrate God. I'm resolved. My mind and spirit are fixed. My heart is engaged. I'm going to worship God. I'm going to celebrate God And we see that he, David's worship was not only voluntary, but was also constant. Again, in verse 1, he says, I, w- uh, I will bless the Lord at all times. His worship was, was constant, not just on Sunday. In all situations and circumstances, at every possible moment of every possible day, not just when... One feels like it, but even when life is a mess, David says, I worship the Lord every day at all times. David's worship was also verbal. He says in, uh, again, verse 1, I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Whether in speech or song, David articulates his adoration to the Lord in God's, he's praising the Lord. That's what he does all the time. And think with me about this for a moment. If God's praise were all, at all times in our mouths, in our lips, what place would be left for slander, for gossip, for complaining, for criticism? If, if the praise of the Lord are on our lips all the time, there'll be no time to do these other uh, hurtful things in our lives. David's worship was also boastful. This is all in the category of celebrating the Lord here in Psalm 34. His worship was boastful. My soul, in verse 2, he says, My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. Uh, I don't know if you realize that bragging is easy for most of us. We're naturally good at bragging uh, uh, about ourselves, about our kids, about whatever it is. No one has to teach us to boast. So let's just replace ourselves and other things in our lives with God and what He's done. And let's brag about God. Let's boast about God. That's uh, um, the idea behind uh, the, 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 where we get the word hallelujah. It's a boasting about God. It's a bragging about Just t- I don't know. <clears throat> Have you ever, you know, your kid does something super insignificant as far as the world, the, the whole world is concerned? And for you, it's like the greatest thing ever, and you want to tell everybody about it. Uh, I've done that, you know, with kids and now uh, a grandkid. Well, that's the attitude that David has, but for God. And he's bragging about his God. You know, he is as, as if it were he's pulling out his phone and said, let me show some pictures of my God here to you. No, not really, because we shouldn't make pictures of God. But uh, uh, <laughs> that's the idea that uh, he's doing. He's bragging about his God. He's celebrating uh, his God 
uh, in his life. And that's something that should translate into our life too. And David's celebration, David's worship is contagious. In verse 2 he says, My soul shall make it bo- its, its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. So people around here are going to hear about his God and about his worship, and he's going to join, they're going to join him in doing that. So his worship, his celebration is contagious. And the thing we see here is that only the humble will enjoy hearing others brag about God. The proud only, only wants to hear about himself or themselves. But the humble will join in contagious worship of the Lord. And, and in this celebration, we also see that David's worship is corporate. In verse 3, he says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. He's bringing people together. As much as one might enjoy private praise, there is something special and empowering and encouraging in joining with others in the adoration of God. Jointly and corporately celebrating God in the community of faith is a non-negotiable. And David invites us to join him in that. So as we relate to God, celebrate him. Secondly, as we relate to God, pray to him. David does that in verses 4 through 7. In verse 4, David sought the Lord by crying out to him in need and trust him alone for both deliverance from fear and salvation from trouble. Now, let me ask you this. How does one know if a person is pursuing God in prayer? According to the psalm, how, do, how does one know that somebody's pursuing God in prayer? It's in verse 4, or in verse 5, sorry. They glow. That's what verse 5 says. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. There's a glow about the person who pursues God in, play, in prayer. It's not a sourness. It's not a, a standoffishness. There's not a, a putting people out. It's a glow that demonstrates that they've been in the presence of God. The one who passionately seeks God's face will reflect the glory of the original. His joy, will ignite, God's joy, will ignite their joy. As Nehemiah prayed, that the joy of the Lord be my strength. And I want you to notice that they look to him in verse 5. They looked to him and were radiant. They looked to God. They looked to Jesus and were radiant. Not just in ideas or propositions or speculative theories about what he's like. They settled for nothing less than the intimacy of spiritual eye contact. They looked to a person, and that person was the Lord Jesus Christ. The result is that they are never ashamed when we seek God this way, He promises never to shame us or to humiliate us or to mock our feeble efforts of coming uh, before Him. God will never belittle or demean you for coming to Him. And that's why the author of Hebrews says that we can come with confidence, with boldness before His throne, knowing that He's going to answer every request that we, we bring according to His blessed will and wisdom. There is never shame for those who seek God. There is never embarrassment for those that seek God. So we celebrate God, we pray to God as we relate to Him, and then we enjoy God. In verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good, blesses the man who trusts in Him. Why taste? Why did uh, the psalm, why did David use this idea of taste? Why didn't David exhort us to think 
or to remember or some other purely cognitive exercise. Why taste? You don't have to say a lot, but think for a minute. Why, why, the words are important, right? We believe that not only the entirety of the Bible is inspired, but every word is also inspired. It's chosen by God. So why taste? Well, because he wants us to be completely satisfied with him. Not just cognitively, but the whole person. There are all the senses involved in, in there. The imagery of tasting makes the point that experiencing God is pleasant and enriching to the soul. There is a spiritual sweetness to the knowledge of God. In essence, what David says is that God is delicious. God is delectable. Jesus is delectable. It is, a, it is as we savor the flavor of His glory and splendor that He is most honored and exalted. Now, this isn't to say that those who taste and see the Lord, that the Lord is good will be insulated from pain and persecution. They will be there. Their determination to seek ultimate satisfaction in God above all else may in fact be what brings opposition to them. But it doesn't matter because abiding in His presence awakens spiritual joys that are incomparably full and spiritual pleasures that never lose their capacity to enthrall and satisfy. So the psalmist invites you, taste, as it were, take a bite out of God and see that He is good. So we celebrate Him, we pray to Him, we taste Him, and we fear Him in verses 9 through 14. Interesting that first David, first David tells us, taste God and savor His goodness, then turns around and in the next verse and commands us to fear Him. And this is true, we must both enjoy God and tremble at His presence. We must re- rejoice and revere God at all times. We must both adore Him and fall on our knees in awe of His power and authority and holiness. When we lose the awe of God, we're in trouble. When, awe, when God becomes just another being out there for us, we are in trouble. We must be always in awe of, of Him. You all have, I think we all have found ourselves in that position where we read in our Bibles for devotional, and yet when we read a passage like Isaiah 6 with the view of the Lord, or Revelation 4 and 5, or any passage, and there's nothing there. It feels dry, and, and there's no awe. Or, or we can even remember what we read, or we just move in our bookmark. That's a very dangerous place to be, brothers and sisters, because we need to always be in awe of God, because He's always so much greater, so much other than us, that nothing about Him is common. And we, so we need to have that fear of Him. So we celebrate Him, we pray to Him, we taste Him, we fear Him, and then we obey Him in verses 15 through 18. In verse 15 and 16, David says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. Have you guys ever heard of Frank, Frankie Valli? What was probably his most fav- famous song? Wow, everybody picked a different one. <laughs> no, can't take my eyes off of you. I think it's most of my favorite. 
<laughs> I can't take my eyes off of you. Remember the song? I go, uh, I love you, baby. Na, 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 na. Is that the same one? may not even be the same one, but I can't take my eyes off of you. That's his most, I think, one of his famous songs. Well, why am I mentioning that? Because according to verses 15 and 15, 14, 15, and 16, God can't take his eyes off those who love obedience and are passionate about purity. He gazes on them with tenderness and warmth and loving affection, watching every move they make. No, no, no less so his ears. He listens to every prayer, takes note of every groan, is pleased with every song of praise, is moved by every cry of anguish. Others may slight you, others may ignore you, your plea, but God won't because he cannot take your eyes off of you, the righteous ones, the ones who love obedience. And don't overlook the remarkable statement of verse 18 where he says, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. Contrary to all our instincts, David declares that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and save such as have a contrite spirit. The brokenhearted, more than others, are convinced that God is distant and remote and uninvolved. It is, but it is the crushing spirit to whom the Lord is the closest, even if they don't feel that. God is near to them in their misery, quick and able to save and comfort and console them. The weak and broken and most helpless of God's children should never think that for those reasons they are off limits to their Heavenly Father. It is to those, in fact, that He specially draws near, to the brokenhearted, to the ones with a broken spirit. So we celebrate, we pray, we taste, we fear, we obey, and we trust. Verses 19 through 22. We trust God as we relate to Him. Look at verse 22. He says, The Lord redeems the soul of His servants, and none of those who trust in Him shall be condemned. Now many are dismayed because God didn't seem to come through for them when they needed him most. As a matter of fact, somebody told me recently that they don't believe in God anymore because he prayed, they prayed for him about something and he never answers them in the way that they wanted it answered. And that may be more common than we might want to imagine. They, lay hold of, they laid hold of him, they say, and in their need, and came up empty, they say. God appears not to deliver the goods only because we trust him for things he never promised. God is not going to fulfill things he never promised. It is not trusting God to demand that God do things our way according to our timetable for our praise and then turning around and getting upset with Him because He didn't do the things He never promised to do. We can't trust Him to manipulate circumstances to bring us worldly success or to insulate us from the hatred and ill ill will of His enemies. And this isn't because God is not trustworthy, but simply because these are things He never guaranteed. So what does it mean there in verse 22 when it says, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned? 
For what then can you and I trust him for? Well, you can trust him to provide you with eternal salvation for your soul, guidance and wisdom, forgiveness, spiritual satisfaction, joys that are full and abundant, pleasures that never end. These are all things we can trust God for. You can trust him never to leave you nor forsake you. You can trust him to be good and gracious and tender-hearted and kind toward you. You can trust him to orchestrate every event and even the evil ones to work together for your ultimate spiritual conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. So you can trust him to fulfill every last promise given to you in this life and for eternity. They will come to pass. So here we have Psalm 34. David teaching us how to relate to God. We relate to him by celebrating him, by praying to him, by tasting him, by fearing him, by obeying him, by trusting in him. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to be in great awe of you. We pray that uh, our hearts will not grow cold and will not lose that great fear and reverence that we have for you. We thank you that you are a God who is worthy of our praise and adoration and fear. We pray that uh, you'd help us to live according to that truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.